does reign above it all. Um, you can be seated. This morning, we're, we're continuing our series looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. And the more time I spend in this book, the more I'm just like, uh, that is, that's what I needed today. Um, I need to be reminded of these truths. I'm, I'm reminded how easy it is for, for my heart to, to drift. I need the, the rebuke, the correction of 1 Corinthians. In fact, that's the, what I consider the key word of 1 Corinthians is, is correction. And um, it's so applicable for today. It's as if this TA and Elmore and I and others are in a room talking about each week how we want to play in the service. We just, we're reading through this. We're going, this, it's as if it's written today. It starts talking about divisions in the church and all the things that work to divide us. It talks about sexual temptation, lawsuits. It talks about marriage. It talks about spiritual gifts and the role of women in the church and the centrality of the resurrection. There's so much for us here. And so um, what I want to do is I want to read to you before TA comes up here, I want to read to you where we're going to be. We're going to cover all of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So I want you to hear it first before it's taught. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And let me read it. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now, you're not ready. You're still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? and behaving only in a human way? For one, one says, I follow Paul, and then another, well, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. 
For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Let me pray for us. Well, Father in heaven, as 1 Corinthians 3 reminds us, Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. We, Lord, are your field. We are your building. We are your temple. There is much, Lord, just like in Corinth, and still today, there is much that works to divide us. Would you forgive us, Lord, for how we divide so easily over personal preferences, petty jealousies, pride, personalities. Lord, would you fix our hearts on you this morning? Lord, as your field, I pray, Lord, that you'd cultivate our hearts, that we'd be receptive to your spirit, we'd receive what you have for us. As your building, Lord, that each one of us would consider how we fit in relation to the other. Thank you, Lord, that we're not meant to live the Christian life alone, but together. And as we come together, we are your body. And we are your temple. I thank you, Lord, that your spirit no longer resides within a physical dwelling place, but within our hearts. And so, Lord, may that make all the difference in the world for us today. May your spirit speak to us. Would you give us receptive hearts? And not only to us, Lord, I pray for every gospel-believing, Christ-exalting church in our city, our country, in this world. I pray, Lord, that as this world looks frantically to and fro for, for peace and solutions, Lord, that we wouldn't find it within man's heart or the wisdom of this world, but we would look to you. I thank you, Lord, for friends like Mark Davis at Park City's Presbyterian Church, who I met with this week. I thank you, Lord, for his faithfulness. I pray, Lord, that that church would be a prevailing church today. I pray, Lord, that Watermark would be a prevailing church today because the gospel preached, your spirit at work in our hearts, where our focus is, where our devotion is. Thank you for T.A., for the ways you've gifted him. Lord, would you give us hearts to receive the message that you prepared. May you speak through my friend and may we be receptive. We pray all this in the name of your son by the power of your spirit.
All right. Hey, it's good to see you. I hope that all is well. So glad that we have the opportunity to open up the Word of God together. I want to just start by sharing with you yesterday, uh, I watched some intense competition. You might be thinking March Madness. I'm not. I'm talking about the four-year-old soccer field that I watched my son Jake play on yesterday. We do have a four-year-old who is playing soccer each Saturday. And yesterday, a kid from the other team scored a goal for the wrong team. That's what happens on the four-year-old soccer field is that kids will score goals for the other team. And when goals are scored for the other team, do you know what the parents do? They celebrate. Why? Because it's inconsequential. No one's keeping score. One of my older kids yesterday was like, who won? I was like, that's a great question. No one can know for sure. It's inconsequential. It doesn't matter. But here's the thing. In the church, when you score points for the other team, it does, it does matter. It really does. Because the reality is this church and any other church that proclaims Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior has a true enemy. And that enemy's desire is to render this church and any church that proclaims Christ wants to render it ineffective. And we've, we've seen uh, in recent history, I mean, there's a very popular podcast that came out just detailing the fall of a very famous church. And then just this month, a documentary was released on a major platform just exposing different failures within a very well-known church. So some points have been scored for for the other team. We don't want to be one of those churches, and we are not immune from becoming one of those churches. And so this morning, as we step back into the book of 1 Corinthians, what Paul is going to encourage us to do is to fight for health at Watermark Community Church. Here's the truth that I need you to get your minds and hearts around. If we are going to be a healthy church, then we have to understand that healthy churches require healthy people and healthy pastors, period. You cannot have a healthy church without healthy people in it. And you can't have a healthy church without healthy pastors leading it. So if you're not in 1 Corinthians yet, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But as Blake just read, we're going to process through the whole chapter. So we've got a lot of work to do this morning. But our goal is to identify what does it look like for you to be a healthy people and what does it look like for us to be healthy pastors so that we can be a church that is healthy, not scoring points for the other team. So let's just jump right in. First, I just want to address, because Blake's already read the passage, we don't need to read it again. But I want to talk about the fact that healthy churches require healthy people. And when I say that, some of you guys are like, I'm clearly in the wrong place because I'm a very unhealthy individual. That's why I'm here. I'm going to regen. I'm like, that's what makes you healthy, is that you see the brokenness in your life and you're trying to pursue wholeness. I'm not worried about you. I'm worried about the person that when I said healthy churches require healthy people, you automatically identified as the healthy person without hearing the message. That's the problem. I'm coming after you this morning. We need to make sure that you are healthy. Healthy people require, healthy churches require healthy people. And one of the reasons that looking at 1 Corinthians is so effective 
is because 1 Corinthians was a very unhealthy church. So as we look at the unhealthiness of the Corinthians, we are able to look at that and figure out what it looks like for us to pursue healthiness. So let me just tell you what it looks like to be a healthy people. First, what we're going to see is this. Healthy people are fully surrendered to the Spirit. So I'm first going to address healthy people, and there's going to be three points for you. And then I'm going to talk about what it looks like for the people on this stage to be healthy pastors, and there's going to be three points for us. And after that, I'm going to give us three application points. So nine points total. Some of you are like, we're going to be here all day. We will be. Good luck. Get comfortable. It's going to be awesome. Healthy people, not really. Healthy people are fully surrendered to the Spirit. Did you see how Paul started to look back at verse 1? What does he say? I'm not even in 1 Corinthians. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, but I, brothers, that's kind. He's like, hey, friends, and then he's just going to be like, well, bam! You know, like he always just softens it like, hey, we're all family, but I couldn't address you as spiritual people but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He says, I couldn't address you as spiritual people. We understand what it means to be a spiritual person because of what we talked about last week. Do you remember what it means to be a spiritual person? It means to be someone who is fully surrendered to the Spirit. That's why I said that healthy people are fully surrendered to the Spirit. Okay, what Paul told us last week is what spiritual maturity really looks like. Do you remember how we define spiritual maturity? If you weren't here last week and you're like, I want to know what it means to be spiritually mature, here it is. Spiritual maturity is simply thinking how God thinks. That's it. You're like, that's not enough. No, it is enough. Because what you think will determine what you feel, and what you feel will determine what you do. Spiritual maturity is simply thinking how God thinks. How is it possible to think how God thinks? Well, that is what Paul unpacked for us last week. He talked about the Spirit of God who fully understands the mind of God because he is God. In that Spirit, when you come to a place where you invite Christ into your life to be your Lord and Savior, That same spirit who is God and fully understands God comes and lives inside of you and leads you into understanding of God. And so when you are fully surrendered to the spirit of God, you begin to think like God would think. And because you think like God thinks, you begin to feel what God would feel and you begin to do what God would do. That is how you become a spiritual person. Spiritual maturity is not the result of spiritual activity, it's the result of spiritual availability. And so if you want to be a truly spiritually mature person, then the best thing you can do is start every day on your knees with hands open just saying, God, I surrender every square inch of my being to you. Holy Spirit, you can have your way in me. Would you make me as much like Jesus as possible? I want to think how you think. I want to feel how you feel. I want to do what you would do. Your way is the best way. I am with you. You do whatever you want. That's how spiritual maturity comes to pass. The Corinthians aren't doing that. They're not fully surrendered to the Spirit. So what does Paul say? He says, I couldn't, I couldn't address you as spiritual people. 
Even though you have the Spirit in you, you're acting like you don't have the Spirit in you. You're acting like people of the flesh. You're acting like people who are physical beings that are operating in life but don't have the Spirit of God inside of them. He then slaps them in the face. It's like you're acting like infants in Christ. He's like, you're not growing up. You're spiritually stunted. Like I preached the gospel to you years ago. You put your faith in Jesus and yet you're still in diapers. Like you're still nursing on the bottle. Something is, is terribly wrong here. You're, you are Christians and yet I'm having to talk to you like you aren't. Do you guys remember those books that you would read when you're sitting in the doctor's waiting room, the, the Where's Waldo books? Do you remember that? Do you remember Where's Waldo books? Just me? Great. This is illustration's not going to go well at all then. But if you don't know what Where's Waldo was, is it would be these different pictures just full of people at the carnival or at just life you know, just people everywhere. And your job was to find Waldo. How'd you find Waldo? Y'all really don't know where's Waldo. It's because he was a guy wearing stripes, right? He's a guy with a beanie with red stripes. Even in the middle of the summer, Waldo's rocking the beanie. Super hipster. You found him because of his stripes. Paul's like, you guys are Waldo without stripes. You look no different. You're not growing up. Back in the fall, I went to this reunion thing for my fraternity at Texas A&M. And, yeah, great, it's good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was such an interesting experience because you have these guys who have been out of school for 20 plus years. And some of the guys, it's like, man, you, you really turned it around, man, way to go. Like, you're like, you got married, never saw that happening, and look at you, like you got these sweet little daughters, and like you're, just like, you're a soft dude, now that's amazing. And then there's other guys, it's like, what are we doing here? Because it's like they, they act the same way. They're telling the same inappropriate jokes. They're, they're drinking the same amount of alcohol. They're sharing the same war stories, the same conquests of women, it's like, really? That was something in your 20s. It wasn't good then. And now you're in your mid-40s and nothing has changed. You just want to kind of get in their face and be like, hey, hey, welcome to your mid-40s. We, we, we need to do something different. It's time to grow up. And that's what Paul is saying here spiritually. He's like, I, guys, there, there, there's, there's been a stunting to, to your growth. You're... You have the Spirit of God living inside of you, and yet you're not living fully surrendered to, to the Spirit. <clears throat> Verse 2, he says, I fed you with milk. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. Now, <clears throat> what you need to understand is when Paul uses milk and solid food, he's not drawing a distinction in content because Paul's content actually doesn't change. The gospel is actually milk and solid food at the same time. 
what Paul is talking about is the Corinthians' perception of the gospel. Because the Corinthians actually thought that they were very spiritual, immature people, but they were pursuing other wisdom apart from the gospel to become spiritual and mature. So the Corinthians were looking at the gospel as milk, and so Paul is like, in your eyes, it was just milk, not solid food. What Paul is addressing here is the Corinthians' lack of application of the gospel, that there was a digestion issue, and they were refusing to apply it because they were just viewing it as milk when what their life needs is not just the milk of the gospel, but the solid food of the gospel. See, the gospel, and when I talk about the gospel, I'm talking about Jesus Christ dying for our sins and rising from the dead. That's what I mean when I say the gospel. I'm talking about the reality that we could never make ourselves right with God. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, and you think that one day you'll stand before God, and if he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, you're going to tell him all the things that you've done to be good enough for him, I assure you it won't be enough. The good news of the gospel is when we could do nothing, God did everything. That God, in his sovereign plan, sent his son Jesus, who was in fact God, and Jesus Christ was punished so that we wouldn't have to be. All of our sin became his, so that through faith in Jesus, all of his righteousness could count as our righteousness, so that when God sees us, he sees Jesus, and he can love us, and he can accept us, and express his approval of us, not because of anything we do, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. We never outgrow that reality. Jerry Bridges actually says, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Why? Because the gospel isn't just a means of transportation to heaven. The gospel is a means of transformation. Now, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> Let me just choose something that probably the majority of the people in the room struggle with, even if you don't realize it. It's comparison. Like we compare like we breathe. You've been comparing since you walked in. You might have been walking through the town center and you're like, okay, that that guy is way more jacked than I am. That's just the reality. Or you know what? She's skinnier than I am. She fixed her hair today and I didn't. It could be you walked in here and someone's raising their hands and they're like, okay, they're more spiritual than me. Today, they're more into this than I am. Like we compare, like we breathe. You're going to walk out, you're going to see people getting in their nicer cars and you're going to be like, I kind of want that. Or you're going to drive past someone's bigger house and something is going to compare. Why do we compare? Well, Leon Festinger back in 1954 popularized the social comparison theory, which just basically says that the reason that we compare is to determine our worth in society. We're trying to figure out how valuable we are. But here's the thing. If you figure out your value based on how you perform or how much people applaud you, your value is going to constantly be fluctuating. And yet when you look at the gospel, what we'll see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is it, is it tells us you were bought with a price. So when Christ was crucified, his declaration from the cross was this, this is now what you're worth to me. 
the value that I'm putting my, on your life is this. You are worth my body and blood, not because of who you are or what you've done, but because I've chosen to make that your value. You are now valued at the body and blood of Jesus Christ. When you embrace that, it changes everything. You don't have to chase approval because approval is chasing you. Do you understand this is, this is how the gospel speaks to our lives? We have to teach ourselves the gospel every day. But with the Corinthians, there was a lack of application of the gospel. I hope that that won't be true of us. But healthy people fully surrender, are fully surrendered to the Spirit. Second, healthy people don't sacrifice unity in the church for the sake of their preferences. Let me say that again. Healthy people don't sacrifice unity in the church for the sake of their preferences. Going on in verse 3. Paul says, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when, I, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So Paul gets very specific and says, hey, I'm talking about the fact that you're Christians, but you're acting like you're not. Let me tell you precisely why I'm saying that you're Christians, but you're acting like you're not. It's because you're fighting. You're fighting in the church, and you are dying on the hill of your preferences. You guys are looking at your favorite pastors, your favorite teachers, and you're like, you know what, he's better than so-and-so. And you're just doing what the rest of the world is doing, because in Corinth, traveling orders would come to town, and people would flock to see them, and the way that the orders would, would develop fame or success, it would be by winning their arguments. And having an argument that was better than another order. And so these orders would gather followings and followers would find their identity in the orders that they followed. And so they would look at followers of other orders and, and they would feel some sense of superiority. And he's like, you're doing the same thing inside the church. You're looking at Paul or Peter or Apollos, and you think that you're somebody or better because you really like listening to one more than the other. And do you know what Paul's saying? He's saying that's actually a sign of spiritual immaturity. You're dying on the hill of your preferences and it's fracturing the church. Unfortunately, that happens all the time today. Happens all the time. Tom Rainer, who is a church consultant for years. He was the president of Lifeway Resources. Now he has a ministry of just resources to church leaders. He, he just asked on Twitter for people's horror stories of what churches have thought about. Let me just read you two of them. Uh, one church argued over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. I just want you to know, John Abel's beard is elder approved. We're good. You don't even need to fight about it. We're good. One church fought over whether, <laughs> this one's actually pretty good. One church fought over whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. Like, I don't know if that was like a barrier to community or I don't know, like... <laughs> Y'all usually go in groups. So I just figure y'all are doing community. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> it's 
Sorry I said that. Anyway, um, so <laughs> here's, here's the reality. What Paul is saying is, you know what? You insisting that your way is the best way is actually a mark of spiritual immaturity. Isn't that interesting? So even in this church, you insisting that your way is the most godly way is a sign of spiritual immaturity. Now, let me be clear on my wording. I said you insisting. I didn't say you believing that your way is the most godly way because you know what? You're entitled to your opinions. But when you insist by sending a heated email to leadership or just kind of emotionally vomiting on your community group about things that are not gospel-related but just it's just all about your preference inside of the church, I love you enough to say it's actually a sign of spiritual immaturity in your life. And I know some of you are like, who's the new guy? <laughs> like, what, have you been here like five minutes? But here's the thing. There are seven to 8,000 people on this campus every single Sunday, which means there are seven to 8,000 opinions of what the most enjoyable and comfortable way of doing church is. Seven to 8,000. It is impossible for us to cater to every person's personal preference of what is most enjoyable or most comfortable. And that's not our calling. That's not what God has called us to do. And so there's going to be times where we do things one way and you'd prefer for us to do it, things another way, but it has no impact on the gospel and it'll be okay. And we don't have to divide because of our preferences. And we'll actually go along with another way for the sake of unity in this church. It's too convicting. Let's move on fast. Okay, number three. <laughs> healthy people, healthy people, don't miss this, healthy people have a correct understanding of and relationship to spiritual leaders, okay? Healthy people have a correct understanding of and relationship to spiritual leaders. Look at what Paul says in verse five. Again, he's just dialing in on their tendency to assert their preferences of their spiritual leaders. So verse five, he says, what then is Apollos? What's Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, God has given each one of us a job to do in the church so we're just doing our jobs. We're just servants. But you know what our tendency is? Our tendency is to turn servants into saviors. That's our tendency. Our tendency is to turn servants into saviors. I remember speaking at these different youth camps in the summer, and kids would come up to me and ask me to autograph their Bibles. And I'm like, that feels all sorts of wrong. And kids are like, you changed my life. I'm like, I really didn't. But that's our tendency. It's to turn servants into saviors. I was the director of a ministry at A&M called Breakaway Ministries, and the, the director before me, his name's Ben Stewart. He, and I'm not just saying this, he is one of the, the most gifted communicators in our nation today. And I remember talking to this college student, he's like, this is what, it's just a conversation with me. Here's what he said. Nobody speaks to me like Ben Stewart does. I mean, you're good. <laughs> but nobody speaks to me like Ben. 
I'm like, no, the, the, the Holy Spirit actually can speak to you better than Ben does. But like our tendency is to make saviors out of servants. Let me just tell you who I am. Let me tell you who John Elmore is. Let me tell you who your favorite pastor is, the person that you podcast, the person that you think everyone needs to hear. We are all just spiritual mailmen. That's all we are. Like, I'm just a spiritual mailman. I did not write the letter. I didn't. This letter, this love letter from God to you, it was written by God. It was not written by me. I am simply the mailman that delivers the letter. That's it. John Elmore, spiritual mailman. The pastor you love and everyone needs to hear that you podcast all the time, spiritual mailman. You know what our tendency is? Our tendency is to glorify the mailman. Let me ask you, when's the last time you took a selfie with your mailman? <laughs> Anyone? Like, when's the last time you got nervous when you saw the mailman coming like, oh my God, oh jeez, all right, here he comes. <laughs> okay, I, I, I just at least want to say hi. I mean, when's the last time when they were driving by your house, you walked up and you were like, hey, I really like how you give me my mail. <laughs> When's the last time? No, they're just a mailman. I'm just a mailman. John's just a mailman. So let me just beg you at this church, don't refuse to hear the letter unless your favorite mailman is delivering the letter. It is so unhealthy. So unhealthy. And so... Healthy people have a correct understanding of it in relationship to spiritual leaders. And Paul just continues to emphasize this. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul picks up this gardening or farming metaphor in and it's, it should be even more meaningful to us today than it was to people back then because, like, we are dialed in on agriculture. Like, scientists can get in a lab with all the different elements from Mars, and they can grow things. And they know that they can grow things. And yet, it's different in the spiritual realm because John and I can spend... 15 to 25 hours every week preparing our messages, and the worship band can rehearse like crazy, and, and our production team can come in here and play with the lights and get the audio dialed in just right so that every Sunday is just this amazing experience, and yet seven to 8,000 people can go to all the effort to get dressed, fight traffic to get in here. You can sit here for an hour and 20 minutes and fight traffic out of here with no spiritual movement in your life. Because I can plant, or John can plant, or Blake can plant. Any one of us can water. But what does Paul say? God gives the growth. That's why spiritual growth is a miracle. Because if God doesn't do a work in you, you're out of luck. Because I can't save you. And I can't make you more spiritual. Verse 8, what does Paul say? 
He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. All he's saying is, you know what? What I'm doing right now, this ultimately this job wasn't given to me by the elders of Watermark. It was given to me by God through the elders of Watermark. And so I am most accountable to God for the job that I do, and you're going to see that starting in verse 10. But verse 9, he says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So he says, We're God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, and you are God's building. What's he saying? He's saying, We all belong to God. So like, I don't belong to you, and you don't belong to me. I belong to God, and you belong to God. But if you look at what we're doing here, we're in a huge auditorium. I've got a microphone on. There's lights on me. People are at certain points during the last 30 minutes have raised their hands or sung along to something. When's the only other time in our world that that is happening? At a concert, right? And what's the expectation at a concert? Well, the performer on the stage is performing to gain fame. And the people in the audience have paid a ticket, and their goal is to be entertained and to leave satisfied. And if they leave unsatisfied, they might choose to never come back or to post a bad review or to post something negative on Instagram. And our tendency is to bring that into the church. And if we're not careful, I'm going to use this stage to build a platform, and you're going to use this church to make you feel as enjoyable or to make sure that life is as enjoyable and as comfortable as possible. But that's not the point of the church. I belong to God. You belong to God. We are, we're His. We're here for His exaltation, not mine. We're here for His glory, not your comfort. So, Healthy people, healthy people have a correct understanding of and relationship to spiritual leaders. Okay, so we've established that healthy churches require healthy people. My second point is this, healthy churches require healthy pastors, okay? So I give you three sub-points to healthy churches requiring healthy people. Now I've got three sub-points to healthy churches requiring healthy pastors. The first is this, healthy pastors, and the reason I'm sharing this with you is just so you can know what to expect of me and what to expect of Blake and John, okay? Healthy pastors know who they are and who they aren't. Healthy pastors know who they are and who they aren't. Who am I? I am a servant. That's what we saw up in verse 5. That's all we are. We are just servants. Who are we? We are just spiritual mailmen. If John and I aren't careful, you know what? We're going to begin to believe that we need your approval and we need your applause, and so we're going to begin to care too much about how we're delivering the mail. And we're going to care too much about whether or not when we hand you the letter, you're like, thank you so much. You are the best mailman out there. So we just have to remember that's all we are. Our job is to faithfully deliver the mail. John the Baptist is a great example for us. Because when, when John the Baptist was on the scene, the religious leaders of the day, they didn't know what to do with John the Baptist, so they went to him and they just asked him, who are you? 
because they wanted to know if he was the Messiah that was coming. And John the Baptist, what did he say? John chapter 1, verse 20, it says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. Well, let me just ask you that. I'm not the Christ. I cannot save any of you. I cannot change any of your lives. When I stand before God, none of y'all are sneaking in behind me like, well, he was my pastor, so I'll just follow him in. No. Hey, you have to deal with Jesus on your own terms just as I have had to deal with Jesus on my, actually on his terms. But I'm not the Christ. Tim Challey said this, Blake sent John and I this quote, and it was just such a good encouragement. Blake's such a good encourager. Tim says this, the preacher is not someone who is to be looked at, but someone who is to be looked through. The task of the preacher is not to stand before the church and be seen and recognized as a great man or even a great preacher. The task of the preacher is to draw the minds and hearts of his listeners to God. He has failed in his calling. He has failed in his calling if he is looked at instead of looked through, okay? Healthy pastors know who they are and who they aren't. Number two, healthy pastors always preach Jesus. Healthy pastors always preach Jesus. Look with me at verse 10. Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation in someone else's building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. So what Paul is saying is, is, look, everything that's been going on has just been a demonstration of God's grace. Like the fact, Paul is saying, the fact that I'm even a Christian, grace of God. The fact that I have the, the wiring and the gifting and the calling that I have, grace of God. The fact that you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, grace of God. And so Paul is saying, when, when I came to you and I preached the gospel, I laid the foundation. What is the foundation that Paul laid? It was the foundation of Jesus. That's why in chapter 15, Paul says that I, I spoke to you or I preached to you of first importance. And what did he preach? Christ died, was buried, and rose from the dead. That was the foundation that he laid. So Paul is just basically saying, look, I'm not with you guys anymore but anyone else who comes after me and leads in the church, they need to be careful how they build upon that foundation because there's a right and a wrong way to build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's saying any other type of foundation would be inappropriate and unnecessary. So what do you do? If the foundation is Jesus, you make everything about Jesus. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation, watch the materials, the building materials. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So Paul right now is talking about what is known as the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, we find in 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one 
may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So this isn't about standing before God and him deciding whether you're going to heaven or hell. This is talking about believers will stand before God and give an account for how they've lived the life that God has given him. And, and God will, will reward you on that day for what, you've, for what you've done. Paul is talking about that moment, and we'll see that in just a moment. But that's just what you need to know that he's, he's talking about. And so he uses fire here. Fire is, is a sign of judgment, but, but what we are not talking about here is eternal judgment in hell, okay? Fire here is what tests the work. It is not what destroys the person being judged. Now, I want you to see the building materials. What were they? Gold. Silver, precious stones. What happens to those when they're put in fire? They stay. Right? They might become liquefied, but they remain. What happens to wood, hay, or straw? They burn up. So what Paul is saying is, hey, look, spiritual leaders, you need to be careful how you build upon the foundation. Because what you build with determines the quality of your work, and it will determine if when you stand before God, all of the work that you did is either going to burn up or you're going to be rewarded for it. And so, what does it look like for a spiritual leader, for a pastor to build with gold, silver, or precious stones? Here it is. You always preach Jesus. Healthy pastors always Preach Jesus. Why do I say this? I say this because if you look back at chapter 2, verse 6, what does Paul say? He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. So he's talking about the wisdom that is taught to Christians. And then in chapter 1, verse 30, we find out what that wisdom is. Verse 30 and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who, because, who became to us wisdom. Jesus is the wisdom. So this church will always be about Jesus. If we make you a, a better husband, but not a more godly husband, that's a problem. Like if we make you a more disciplined person, but not a more godly person, that's a problem. Like we're not just going to gather together and figure out how we can be, uh, you know, more high capacity or more strategic or more disciplined or how to just do more good things. Like we are always going to come back to Jesus. And then third, healthy pastors know that one day they will stand before Jesus. That's what I, we were just talking about, the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 13 Verse 13 says, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You see that? God will test the quality of our work. What is quality work in God's eyes? Quality work is Christ-exalting work. 
And so, hey, if you're out there and you're a young, aspiring pastor, let me just remind you what James 3.1 says. It says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Anyone want to be a pastor? Because God cares about what we do. I, I remember sitting in a room with a bunch of leaders, and Francis Chan, if you're familiar with him, he was addressing this group of leaders. And here's what he said. I loved it. He was like, you know what? He was like, if I die on the way home and I stand before God, I'm not going to give a rip about what you just thought of me speaking. I'm only going to care about what he thinks. And I have to remind myself of that. There are times when I'm preparing for Sunday morning and I'm praying for God to purify my heart for Sundays. There are times where I'll pray, God, if I die on the way home, may I be found faithful in the last message that I preach. Because ultimately, I'm going to stand before him. And when I stand before him, I won't give a rip about what you think of me. And so it's just good to remind, remember, healthy pastors know that one day they will stand before Jesus. So here's what we've established this morning. Healthy churches require healthy people and healthy pastors. So what do we do? What's our response? Three things. Recognize, repent, and rejoice. Okay? Recognize where you're unhealthy. Repent of the ways that you're unhealthy. And then rejoice yourself to health. And we see that in the remainder of this chapter. First, recognize. Look at what Paul says in verse 16. He says, do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will, will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are the temple. So Paul is kind of, he's, he's introducing this idea that, hey, you're not just any old building you're actually God's temple. What was God's temple in the Old Testament? It was the place where God's presence resided. And now he's saying that's, that's who you are. And when he uses the word you, it's not individual, it's plural. Saying that's who we are as we gather together as watermark. We are a place where God's spirit resides. May we be a people who are marked by God's presence when Visitors come, my hope is that you would come and you would leave saying, God is here and I've met with him. When you, when you come, if you've been coming here for 22 years, my hope is every Sunday you would come and you would, you would believe God is here and I have the opportunity and the privilege to meet with him because God is present in the midst of his people. And yet there's ways that we can destroy what's happening here. How do we do that? by you majoring in your preferences, by you bringing divisions to the church, by dying on the hill of your preferences. How, how can I destroy what's going on here? By building my own platform, by caring too much about what you think of me, by insisting that you worship me instead of the one that I proclaim. And so it's just good for us to, to number one, recognize where, where is there unhealth in our lives? If, if you're not fully surrendered to the Spirit or if you're majoring in your, your preferences or if you have an unhealthy relationship with the people who are on this stage or podcasts you listen to, 
You need to recognize that. John and I need to recognize that anywhere where our hearts are not right before the Lord when we get up on this stage, we need to recognize, number two, let's repent of it. Let's repent of it. What does Paul say? He says, let no one deceive himself. And it, and it feels like he starts talking about a different topic, but, but he's not. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So, let no one boast in men. You see what he's saying? He's saying, look, you guys have thought that you're wise in this age, but wise in this age means you're wise apart from God and the work of the Spirit in your life. And the reason that you think that you're so wise is you've been putting your hope in the pastors that lead you. But if you think that that's what makes you wise, be careful because your wisdom in God's eyes is foolishness. So what is his recommendation? What did he say? He says, he says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, here's his recommendation. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. What's his word? Repent. Repent. Turn from what you think is right and turn towards what God has declared to be right. Repent of any unhealthiness and then finally rejoice. Rejoice. Look at what he says. Look at how he ends the passage. Verse 21, he says, and this is, this is interesting. I just want to unpack it for you. He says, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's, and Christ's is God. Christ is God's. What's Paul saying here? Here's his point. Don't miss it. His point is look at what Jesus Christ has done. Look at what Jesus Christ has done. Because of Jesus, everything, everything, the pastors that lead you, and everything in this world is actually now to your benefit because of Christ. And so before we address the, the leader's names that he mentioned, did you see the list? He says whether life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. What's he saying? Jesus Christ has flipped everything. There's things in this world that, that cause suffering, and yet even those things Jesus has redeemed those things. Now all are yours and all are to your benefit. And so Jesus Christ went to the cross. He died, was buried. He rose from the dead. When you put your faith and trust in him, it changes your reality. Your life now is a life where the spirit of God fills you and leads you. You get to live life with God now. You don't have to wait till heaven. Heaven has come to you to be with you. Death Death is not your greatest fear anymore. It's actually your reward because when you die, life doesn't get worse. It just gets 
better. Your present now has purpose. Why? Because Christ has brought you into his family, and he's invited you into the family mission. You're an ambassador of Christ, and your future is secure because one day you will spend all of eternity beholding the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. So do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying, everything is for your benefit. What does it have to do with Paul, Cephas, and Apollo? He's like, why are you choosing one over the other? You get all three. All three are to your benefit. Don't play favorites because you get them all. Be faithful. Be grateful. Rejoice that God has given you all things. You want to be healthy, recognize, repent, and rejoice. I assure you, just watch the correlation between gratitude and health. The more grateful you are for what's happening here at Watermark, the more healthy you will be. Healthy churches require healthy people and healthy pastors. May we not be a church that scores points for the other team, but may we recognize, repent, and rejoice. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I know that we have downloaded a lot this morning. And yet we need it, God. We, we never just want to assume that we're healthy. And we never want to just assume that this place is healthy. But it is our desire to be a healthy, Christ-exalting, Christ-glorifying church. And so I pray for the people in this room. May they be fully surrendered to your spirit. May they not die on the hill of their preferences at the cost of unity. I pray that their understanding of their relationship to the leaders that are on this stage would be healthy, Lord God. And I pray for the people on this stage and the leaders at this church, Lord God. I pray that we would be clear on who we are and who we're not, that we are not the Christ. God, and I... My hope and prayer is that we would always preach Jesus, that there would never be a Sunday that feels more self-help than Christ-exalting. Lord, and may we live with the sobering reminder that one day we will give an account to how we used our time on this earth. May we be a people, God, that recognize, God, would you convict us even now? May we repent. And may we rejoice. If there's anyone in the room this morning that doesn't know you, Lord God, then I pray that they would see the beauty of Jesus for the first time and they would put their faith in you. We love you. You are a good king, Lord Jesus. Amen.